This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Trolley, bringing the best of my times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. But you can probably listen to that in full right now, because if, like me, you're stuck at home while working, uh, then why not stick the radio on? Yeah, catch me from 10 o'clock every Monday to Thursday on your DAB radio, on the Times Radio app, on your smart speaker, or at times.radio. But as you're here, why not enjoy the best bits from the show? Anyway, coming up, we've got a chat with Richard Leonard. Who's he, you might ask, as lots of people in Scotland seem to. He's the Scottish Labour leader, has been for some time now. Uh, but all the polls suggest he's not having much impact. I'm asking him how he plans to save Labour in Scotland, save the union and save his job. We've also got Disunited Kingdom, uh, where we speak to uh, four political journalists from the four quarters of the UK to find out what's going on uh, with them. Uh, but first, our columnist panel. It's Wednesday, so it must be Camp Alice. That's John Kapner and Alice Thompson. Let's start with um, the, the the vote um, that uh, the that is happening later today. Boris Johnson making a statement in the comments in about an hour's time. Uh, then there will be this vote, and it does seem as if the very angry Tory lockdown sceptics who who were out in some force uh, at the end of the year saying uh, lockdowns don't work and we shouldn't be doing this, uh, they seem to have melted away a bit. Um, what do you think is going on, though, Alice? I think they have. I think all the sort of so-called COVID deniers and the more sceptical uh, wing, particularly the Tory party, but also in the country, have really um, quietened down quite a lot. And I think that is just because they're so overwhelmingly faced with the figures now. And there are still people chanting outside hospitals and COVID deniers who are saying nothing's happening. But we're now getting a huge body of evidence just showing that um, the hospitals are overwhelmed and that the doctors and the nurses are really, really struggling. And I think we, people still worry there, there can be still scare tactics and all the ideas of sort of too many sort of mutant strains and you know, and children getting it. And, and I think you have to be very calm and, and deliver the facts. But I do think it's very hard now, if you are a COVID denier, not to accept that we have had to go into another lockdown. And actually, you know, 79% of people did support tougher measures even before Boris Johnson brought them in. So I think that must be playing on the minds of quite a lot of these MPs now that actually that most of their constituents do want another lockdown. 
John, the thing that's always sort of slightly struck me is the people who say that lockdowns don't work, if you accept, I mean, if you, but you might well think that coronavirus, the whole thing is a, is a, is a hoax, which is an entirely separate thing. But if you're a reasonably intelligent person going around saying that lockdowns don't work, um, if, if we accept that this is a virus spread uh, by our breath, by being in close contact with people, but by reducing the number of close contacts you have, that's going to reduce the number of people catching it. That strikes me as, as logic. I've, I've, it's one of those things I really struggle with. It's like just shouting lockdowns don't work. They might not have got rid of the virus. We might not like them, uh, the lockdowns. Um, but uh, the, the suggestion that we would be in exactly the same position without having had the lockdowns does strike me as a bit odd, John. Yeah, but I mean, you're talking to people who are kind of quasi-rational. Um, and there are some people who are not. And there's been really interesting early um, psychological studies of conspiracy theorists in the in the contemporary age uh, and a sense that not believing what are patent facts, you know, Donald Trump not believing that he lost the presidential election and so many other things sort of gives you a, a, a strange sense of anti-establishment agency. I mean, search me as to how the brain can possibly get its head around that. Um, but some people do believe that. I mean, it's it's on the on the um, lockdowns. The one thing that they might point to is that the November into December one um, from early November to the second of December what happened then, as we know, as we subsequently knew or actually knew at the time, but this, but the politicians were too slow, was that it wasn't dealing um, with the spread. And that is because the second strain, the new strain, uh, was already getting pretty rampant in Kent and, and moving onward. So the figures were not bearing out that second lockdown. It's partly also that that second lockdown was not remotely enforced. I remember sort of people joking, you know, lockdown, this ain't much of a lockdown. This time, the third time, it feels very different. It feels at, at least as, if not more scary than the very first one at the end of March. And I suppose that's a slight um, thing, isn't it, Alice? And we'll, we'll come on and talk a bit about um, homeschooling and uh, the joys of all that. But to some extent, it's not just children being at home and then, you know, not spreading the, the, the virus at school. It's also sometimes you need these big things to sort of jolt the country. Go, oh, right, this is a big deal now. And actually part of the trouble with the uh, November, October, November lockdown was that it, there, were, there were a few too many things that meant that life could carry on more normally. Um, and actually, you do need to jolt everyone with some some big uh, um, changes in our lives. And, and let's be honest, having your children at home uh, or when they could otherwise be at school uh, is a big jolt to most people's lives. Yeah, I think that's been the biggest change. If you saw the announcement, really, that Boris Johnson made mainly was about schools in the end and actually should have been about universities as well, because a lot of the university students have been left hanging, not knowing quite what they are doing. Um, but I think that it's really the younger generation who was saying to them, right, you're, just, you're going to have to stop, which then impacts massively on their parents who are all thinking, oh, my God, here we go again, which was much more the first lockdown than the second lockdown. It was much more a sense of how, you know, how to struggle with trying to teach your children anything at all, um, having always assumed that you'd be rather good at it or that you could at least, you know, you knew the basics and you'd done your O-levels or GSEs and, you know, you could do a bit of maths and English. Actually, it proved to be incredibly difficult the first time around and I think now it's going to be even more difficult. 
It's um, interesting, John. We were talking about this on uh, the show yesterday with um, Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. What, what impact it would have had if most of the sort of lockdown sceptics or, you know, go the Swedish way, cranks, mm. whatever you want to call them, if they'd been on the left rather than the right, the, 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 the fact, or, or just of a different side to the current prime minister, because they've been very vocal, if not that numerous, but their impact on uh, the decision-making process of Boris Johnson has been significant. The, the, oh, I'm not sure I should do it yet because of the uh, noisy, if small number of Tory MPs who, who wouldn't be happy about that. Yeah, but that's also partly because... Boris Johnson is, if not in in full measure, he is one of them anyway. He is a distinct English exceptionalist, libertarian, this view that somehow we were built with a stronger constitution, we weren't going to get these sort of foreign type viruses and, you know, all the sort of language that he used at the beginning. He was in a sense of denial. He was a sort of anti-statist. And those countries that... Um, were more upfront, more statist, if you want, more sort of, this is what we've got to do. I'm not entertaining a discussion. We just have to do it. Are the ones everybody has suffered, but are the ones who have suffered least. And it just does go against Boris Johnson's grain. It's not as if he inhabits a different part of the Conservative Party um, to those who have been highly sceptical. And he has been dragged kicking and screaming into taking decisions. You can see how miserable it makes him and so much of the language is about how he feels as you know as if anybody really cares um you know it's about how how the public is and had he been faster at every step of the way and more decisive you cannot simply tell people to get ready for school on a monday and by monday evening be saying well actually you've got to work from home again it's just so discombobulating for for everybody concerned it was interesting, um, Alice. I was speaking to someone uh, yesterday who, a uh, friend of Boris Johnson's, and you you worked with him some time ago, didn't you? And they they were basically saying that this is entirely in keeping with his uh, sort of approach to everything. If he was on the back benches, he would probably be one of those still writing columns saying, uh, you know, let freedom win the day. But crucially, he would file that column very late because he wouldn't make a decision on what to write his column on to the last minute in case a better idea came along. And there's, this person was saying there's a total weed across too. He didn't want to make difficult, unpopular, nasty decisions about locking up the country until there was no other option because he was always hoping that something else would turn up. Well, funny, actually, when I was listening just now to John, I was thinking literally of Boris in the leader conference with us in the Telegraph and we shared an office together and... I remember them. We wrote our columns on the same day. So we would have a discussion first about who was writing what. And I absolutely know that he would have been one of the don't be so ridiculous. Um, you know, Britain needs to pull their socks up. We don't need this. You know, we're not going into another lockdown um, libertarian angle. And he'd been very funny about it and very entertaining. And then if um, anything had changed by 8 p.m. that evening, he would have then managed to very subtly tweak his columns that had changed to totally the opposite. Um, and it would have always been late, I and mean, it was always late, no, and everyone was always shrieking and shouting and getting upset. Um, but it would be very funny, whichever he said, and uh, it would be played for laughs. And that's the problem, is he just can't make up his mind. So he's not a denier, he's just in denial a lot of the time, I think. Um, and I think it's yep. been excruciatingly difficult for everyone. He was really embarrassed. I mean, to take people back and put them in a school situation for a day and then pull them out. You know, children who are really very young is incredibly discombobulating. For the teachers, it's appalling. They, you know, one moment they're being told they've got to, you know, 
get a system up where they're testing all secondary children, school children. And then, you know, literally the next day they're having to set up lessons for them online, which is incredibly difficult um, to do anyway. And even more difficult if you've been planning just to try and you know, get them all tested. Um, I don't really know how the teachers are coping anymore. I mean, and they've also, a lot of them got their own children who are now going to be at home. So how they sustain this, I don't know. I mean, there's one potential. If he uh, does show some rare decisiveness, and Alice's depiction is exactly right, if he does show some decisiveness now, he could help to uh, really steer the whole vaccination process, to sort of own the vaccination process. We are per head of population, <coughs> according to the stats I've just seen, uh, third in the world at the very early stage of inoculating people. Anything and everything could go wrong, and knowing the competence of this government may well do so, but he could turn it around. But in order to do so, he needs to act very, very differently. He needs to make sure that things happen in an extraordinarily efficient way. And uh, I think we, he would have to uh, introduce and Parliament would support not those rarefied conservatives, but most people, including the, uh, most of the Labour Party, would support measures where if you refuse to be vaccinated, you simply will not get access to certain public services, to transport services, to flights, whatever. You just by whatever date you will need to have shown that you have been vaccinated. Do you think that would fly, Alice? Is that a good idea? Well, I think it's more the one benefit I think that Boris Johnson now has is the fact that we have fewer anti-vaxxers than, say, in America and France. So we have got an opportunity to get ahead quite fast, as well as if you know we, we have the infrastructure now slowly being put into place, way too slowly. But I do think that might be, as John said, Boris's best way out, if we can possibly get ahead in the vaccination game. Um, and really push it, people will feel more confidence once again in the government. They'll finally feel that actually for once, maybe we're doing quite well compared to other countries. And I find it very difficult that we spend our whole time comparing ourselves to other countries. If we're going to, this is a good one to compare ourselves with. And I think that right, the um, only with one. Keir Starmer, I feel, yeah, for, for, I think with Keir Starmer, I think the idea for the Labour leader to say that, you know, you may, that, that, that maybe we should be, you know, we should find people, you know, it should be illegal um, not to be vaccinated. That's quite difficult. I think actually the peer pressure in the end is going to be enough, probably the most. And I think maybe then you do say, look, you can't get access to certain things. But at the moment, I think the best thing to do is try and get as many people as we can to do it voluntarily. And I think people are beginning to know. I think they're so frightened of this second strain um, and the possibility of the one from South Africa that they might actually start thinking that they need to do it. Yeah, and I, I, well, I, I've certainly told my grand I'm not going to see her until she's had a vaccine. So whether or not she gets a vaccine, mm. I, I will know where I am in the family pecking order. <laughs> um, Alice, just very quickly, your column uh, today, you touch on what lots of people are going through right now. Parents suddenly finding themselves juggling Wi-Fi and laptops and homeschooling again. Um, there's been lots of focus on uh, older people and the impact of the pandemic on them and then uh, children too. But, you know, middle-aged parents are having a tough time as well. Well, that astonished me that the latest polls that came down about people who were having mental health 
challenges, cited in particular working mothers with children, which seemed extraordinary actually, because you do think that it would be the elderly and the most vulnerable who are locked away, um, or the youngest who are really missing out on huge and crucial milestones and on their childhood. But actually, it seems to be the people in the middle, particularly women, who are trying to hold it all together and trying to look after these vulnerable elderly relatives at the same time as trying to homeschool and keep their jobs. Um, and they're finding it extremely difficult. I don't say that it's not that men aren't. And I think they do too. But for some reason, women feel more worried and guilty and concerned about what is happening to their relatives often than men. And I think they, um, they're more agonised really about what will happen to the next generation as well. That was John Campton and Alice Thompson there. And of course, you can read them both. Uh, they both write for The Times. You just need to get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Richard Leonard and Dishinati Kingdom. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now then, who is Richard Leonard? Well, let's turn our attention now to uh, Scotland. Big year for Scotland and Scottish politics. Uh, elections to the Scottish Parliament uh, due in May uh, suggest, so far the polls at least suggest that Nicola Sturgeon could be on course for another majority and she will demand a second independence referendum. But you don't have to go that far back in history to find a time when Scottish politics was dominated by the Labour Party. Now... They're, they're squabbling with the Tories for second place in the polls. Uh, the Scottish Labour leader, Richard Leonard, faced calls to resign last year over concerns about the lack of impact that he was having. Uh, in a moment, I will speak to him to ask him what are his plans to save uh, the party, uh, the union and his own job. But first, last summer, we did a uh, one of our focus groups here on Times Radio where we speak to swing voters uh, on the big issues of the day. And we did a special Scottish one to mark the anniversary of the first independence uh, referendum in Scotland. And this is what they had to say about Scottish Labour. What about Labour then in Scotland? Finished, I think. Yeah. yeah. Finished. Why are they finished? They just are. They, they, they should have, I think they should have jumped on the sort of independent bandwagon and being a Labour Party for Scotland and I think they would have got somewhere. I think people were just sick of voting for Labour and it going nowhere. 
you know, Scotland is all labour and it never went anywhere. It's just back of the bus stuff. You know, well, the, the people that's running the country is Tory. It's just a, a waste of vote, in my opinion. People just voted it because they didn't want Conservative up here. But it was really, it was like a wasted vote. I think now, with the, the, down in England, or even less. But I think down here they are. I think people are more look more at SNP rather than Labour now. Because no matter who we vote up here, it doesn't make it really any difference because you're still governed by the Tories down there. So I, I do feel Labour have got less and less up here. I do think with Labour, nothing is changing year after year. You know, we were continuing on. And when, you know, when there was first talk about uh, independence vote, you know, there's a lot of doubt, not sure how would it happen, how it would work. But the thing about seeing SNP is they're standing up and fighting for us as Scots. And I don't think Labour's doing that now. I think Labour's plodding along. I'm going to tell you anything about the Labour Party, I think they've kind of blended into insignificance. Uh, I do remember a time growing up where Labour it was all Labour, uh, but I think they've just kind of fizzled out. I think they've probably not shown any gumption to actually do anything, and I, I'd agree with what the rest of the guys are saying. The SNP seem to be focused on Scotland. So, Richard Leonard, the Scottish Labour leader, joins me now. Good morning, Richard. Morning, Matt. So let's start then with, with what that group was saying. I should point out that group of voters, they were all people who voted against Scottish independence uh, in the first referendum. During the course of the, the focus group we ran, it became clear they were all leaning towards voting for independence. But are they right? Is Labour in Scotland finished? Uh, no, certainly not. But I mean, uh, we have suffered an electoral decline over the last decade and uh, we need to turn that around. I think that um, when we start talking about the challenges that we face as a country um, in building a different kind of society and a different kind of economy um, after the pandemic, then it's the ideas of Labour and those on the left that will resonate with people. So uh, we've seen the exposure of the weaknesses of things like the care system in the pandemic. And so we've spoken about the need for a national care service alongside the National Health Service. We've said that we stand for public ownership of public services, that we want to plan the economy and have less market, that we need a radical industrial strategy that puts jobs at its heart. Uh, and so there are big challenges, economic, social, that we face. And I think it's the Labour Party that is offering the answers uh, to the questions that people have got. But repeatedly, it's been clear, if you look at the polls, that, that Scottish voters don't agree with you i mean the uh, even you talk about the decline over the the, uh, the last decade or so uh, even since you became labor leader in scotland shortly afterwards uh, you you peaked at 28% uh, of the votes uh, of, in uh, polling in the most recent poll you labor down to 16% you don't appear to be having any impact in scotland and there's been lots of criticism even some of your own colleagues labor msps calling for you to go yeah, and 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 Matt, I'm, I am um, I, I hear that, uh, but I'm not too mesmerised by polls. Um, and actually, if you look at more recent polls, we are climbing. Uh, we've gone ahead of the Tories in, in quite a lot of the polls that have been conducted recently. But I'm not complacent, and I don't underestimate which those, the which size of, those polls? of the challenge I'm, that we face. Which of those polls? I'm looking at the uh, What Scotland Thinks website, which compiles, I thought, all polling in Scotland. I can't. Well, but if you look at there's the, one well, where you're neck and neck with the Conservatives. You're not ahead of the Conservatives. Well, well, well on the last Servation poll, uh, we we were. Um, 
but but I, as I say, Matt, I don't underestimate the scale of the challenge that uh, that lies before us. Uh, but I think that uh, people are, you know, if when we look at what people's priorities are, yes, there are polls which show there has been a growth in support for um, independence. But if you then ask people whether that is their priority, uh, it, it is not. And and for most people, their priorities are about jobs and the economy. Uh, they are about public services, especially the National Health Service. Uh, they are about uh, the state of our education system and whether kids are getting uh, the best education that they can get. So these are what people are saying the priorities are. And, and especially as we look towards the elections uh, in four months time, uh, we're saying uh, and people are telling us that the priorities of the next parliament, the priorities of the next Scottish government have got to be on focusing on uh, tackling the unemployment crisis that we will face. Uh, they've got to be about rebuilding the economy. They've got to be about how can we move away from that decade of austerity, which has seen people's uh, cost of living uh, squeezed down and has seen public services roll back. So it's about a different vision for a different kind of society that we are putting to the people and that I think is resonating and reflects the priorities that the people have got. But I, I suppose my my question really is still the same, that it, it doesn't appear to be uh, resonating, does it? There was a poll, Conway's poll just before Christmas, only 20, fewer than a quarter of people thought Scottish Labour had strong leadership. Uh, Angela Rayner, Labour's national deputy leader, even got your name wrong at the party's conference last year. Uh, Rachel Reeves, a senior member of Keir Starmer's team in London, uh, said you should consider your position. Has Keir Starmer suggested that you should stand down? Uh, no, he's not. And I've got a good working relationship with uh, Angela and with Keir. Uh, and together we are working to uh, restore people's trust and confidence in the Scottish Labour Party. And, uh, you know, Keir understands especially the importance of Scotland and the importance uh, of the Scottish constitutional question, too, which is why just before Christmas he made an important speech where he set out his commitment to have uh, radical uh, economic and political devolution right across the UK. And that that was also about uh, what we can do to strengthen decision making in Scotland through the Scottish Parliament. So um, there is a good working relationship that we've got and a shared agenda that we've got, which is about strengthening the Scottish Parliament, sticking up for devolution. You know, Matt, that recently uh, Boris Johnson said that he thought devolution had been a disaster. Well, we are the party that delivered devolution and we are the party that will defend devolution. And, you know, if you reflect back on the referendum that took place in 1997 and then the referendum that took place in 2014, it wasn't really a choice simply between unionism and nationalism or independence. People were, in effect, voting for a devolved Scottish Parliament within the UK. And, and, I, and I believe... Uh, to my boots, that that is still the popular choice of the people of Scotland. Would you, if if there was a, a second uh, independence referendum, or even perhaps even before then, if you thought that the cause of protecting the union would be better served by someone else, would you consider standing aside then? Well, I, I really don't think that that's um, uh, that, that's a question which I'm contemplating because. The context of that would be that we would be losing the election in May. And I know 
the questions that I get asked are based on uh, the SNP sweeping to a majority. And there is a certain um, arrogance about the SNP. There is a certain um, uh, belief uh, that uh, somehow they've got a right to rule for the next five years. I dispute that. You know, I'm leading the Scottish Labour Party into those into those elections with a very clear and distinctive for the conditions that we are going to face as a, as a country over the next five years. And, you know, somebody said to me recently, and I think this is just so true, um, as we come out of this national crisis, uh, people will have choices to make. And, and the parallel between now and the 20th century, I think, is quite uh, instructive because uh, we can either come out of this crisis as we came out of the First World War and limp into uh, recession and depression, or we can come out of this crisis as we came out of the Second World War and build a different kind of society and put a different priority and tackle the great inequalities that we face and invest in public services and, and, and create things like a national care service, which would tackle uh, the, uh, the problems that have been highlighted by the uh, pressure put on through the pandemic. Are you going to be the first minister after the elections in May? Well, I'm fighting for every single vote and every single seat, and it will be in the end up to the people, won't it, to decide uh, what the outcome of that election is. I mean, when the Scottish Parliament was uh, was being created, uh, actually it was being created with the idea there would be no overall majority and that there would be, uh, therefore, a need for parties to cooperate and work together. Uh, and I think that's something that uh, perhaps we should... Uh, go back to consider, you know, how can we get better cross-party working? Uh, how but can the only we reason get that's not happened is because the SNP are so popular. The only reason that's not happened is the SNP won uh, so dramatic. They broke the system and they won a majority. They broke their, their levels of support were so high. They broke the system. What what do you think you could do about Nicholas? You you rightly highlight all those issues, whether it's education or healthcare and so on. Uh, even even a, 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 a case rate and a death rate not a million miles away from that in England in terms of coronavirus. Uh, she, her popularity still continues to soar. During this pandemic, we've seen support for independence to rise. What's the single... If you come and knock on my door... I mean, I'm not in Scotland, but imagine I'm living in Scotland. You come and knock on my door. Uh, sum up to me in a sentence why someone should vote for you and not for Nicola Sturgeon. Well, because I'm offering a different kind of future, a, a change and not more of the same. Because... Uh, I want to tackle the big uh, issues that will be facing the people of Scotland, which will be about uh, how do we rebuild a full employment economy? How do we get jobs for young people? Uh, how do we invest in a national health service when demand is increasing? How can we build a national care service alongside a national health service uh, to give people dignity in their old age? Um, how can we plan our economy instead of just relying on market forces, which is seeing jobs going abroad rather than being uh, invested in here. So uh, rather than just be reactive, we want to have a kind of proactive, forward-looking vision of the kind of Scotland that we want to build and the kind of economy that we want to build to support it. And there are some stark choices to make and, and the SNP's record, whether it is on health, whether it is on education. I mean, life expectancy in Scotland, Matt, is not going up even before COVID. It's not going up, it's going down. Um, inequality is rising. Child poverty is growing. Uh, pensioner poverty is growing. Um, we've got a, a, a national health service, which the Auditor General says is running too hot. So there are big things that need to change. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm determined to get the message across 
that it's the Labour Party that has got the answers to those questions uh, that will do things differently, uh, that will not offer more of the same, uh, that mm. will uh, will find a way uh, to get us through the crisis that we will face as we come out of the pandemic and, and, and build a different kind of Scotland. Uh, Richard Leonard, Scottish Labour leader, thank you for joining us on uh, Times Radio. Up next, we will uh, take a look. At, we will do our disunited kingdom panel with the politics from the four corners of the UK. That's ahead of Boris Johnson's statement to the House of Commons on the latest lockdown. That's next on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Yeah, we've got that statement from Boris Johnson coming uh, live from the House of Commons uh, in the next 15, 20 minutes or so. But first, disunited kingdom. We always convene our panel to find out what's going on in the four corners of the UK. Awful lot going on in the, uh, across the country. So let's uh, whiz around and say uh, good morning to our panel. We've got John Manley, political correspondent of the Irish News in Belfast. Hi, John. Good morning, Matt. Uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Jerry Scott, Westminster correspondent at the Yorkshire Post. Hi, Jerry. Good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, very good. Abby Whittock is education correspondent at Wells Online. Hi, Abby. Oh, hi, how are you? Oh, very good. I'm very good. And finally, Gina Davison, Scotland's, uh, the Scotsman's uh, deputy political editor. Hi, Gina. Morning, Matt. So, uh, Gina, let's start with you and that chat I was just having. Uh, I'm not sure how productive it was, but the chat I just had with Richard Leonard uh, about this question of how the Labour Party could or might come back in Scotland. Um, were, were you reassured or, or, or um, enlightened in any way? The question you asked there about how Scottish Labour makes any comeback is a question they've been asking um, for most of the last decade, to be honest. Um, and I didn't really hear anything new there from, from Richard Leonard. And while he's right that there are, there are many issues um, to be considered you know, in terms of how we, um, as a country, recover from from COVID, and of course there's uh, Brexit to look at as well. Whether he likes it or not, and I know he doesn't like it, is that you know Scottish politics is dominated by two women of uh, very strong characters and personalities, and and he's kind of drowned out. And his message, whether it's right or not, um, just doesn't cut through with the public, and. That's that's been shown in the polls, as you were saying. And also there was a, a poll that showed that his own sort of reach was something like minus 27 with the Scottish public. People just really didn't know who he was. Um, and that is not you know, good news coming into an election period. So, yeah, let's talk about those elections. And I'll come around the whole panel and ask about uh, elections happening in your um, patch. But, but is the expectation the, the elections of the Scottish Parliament will still go ahead in May? And what is your prediction for, for what might happen? Yeah, the expectation at the moment is that they will still go ahead. Um, the Electoral Management Board up in Scotland has said that they think that it can happen. Um, we've had a number of by-elections uh, in Scotland in the last few months, uh, social distancing and hand sanitising and all that kind of thing. So they seem to think that it, it will be possible, whether or not they should go ahead, because I don't know how much campaigning can get done while people uh, are potentially still in lockdown is another matter. But Nicola Sturgeon has said that she thinks they should go ahead. And so I guess what she says goes at the minute. Um, so <laughs> we'll see We'll see what um, whether or not that, that will change and if you look at the polls then I mean it's not surprising she wants it to go ahead and possibly not surprising opposition MSPs might be slightly reluctant because it looks like it's going to be a, a clean sweep across the constituencies for the SNP um, and possibly uh, quite a number of list seats taken up as well because you know we have this dual um, 
voting situation in Scotland. And there are also a number of new, um, smaller independence parties who are going to stand in the list and they think they might scoop up some votes. So we might find that come May we have a, a parliament that is hev even heavily more weighted to independence than, than it is at the minute. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, let's go to uh, Wales now. Abby Whittock uh, from Wales Online. Uh, similar story there with the, the elections in Wales? Similar story. Um, so Mark Drakeford, the First Minister, says that um, he remains committed to May 6th for the polling date, but he wants there also to be some flexibility if, if it's needed. Um, and the party's Senate leader, Paul Davis, says he believes the election can can be held safely on that date. And again, it's probably in their interest to hold it then if, if they can. Um, I think they, they were looking at a law to perhaps um, delay it, but I think their commitment really is to, to May the 6th if possible. And uh, Joey Scott uh, from the Yorkshire Post, obviously there the were elections happening right across in there's local council elections, there's mayoral elections for large parts of the country, whether that's, you know, the London mayoral, um, we've got... Uh, uh, you know, West Midlands, Liverpool, Bristol, so on. Uh, there's also police and crime commissioners, the election that everyone's excited about. Uh, what's your expectation? What, what, what particular races are uh, happening in Scotland that you're keeping your eye on? And is your expectation they will still go ahead? Well, actually, you missed the most important mayoral election there, which is the West Yorkshire mayoral election. Oh, of course. Um, I apologise. <laughs> I apologise. Um, and they're getting there for the first time, um, you know, if, if things go ahead. Um, and it's actually going to be a really interesting race. You've got um, current Batley and Spain MP uh, Tracy Braben standing for Labour and the Conservatives don't have a candidate yet and we're what <laughs> arguably just a few months out um, and all my usual gossip sources don't even know who <laughs> they uh, might even be tapping up so I'm not sure they're feeling overly confident about about winning it, but it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. And you know, it's all part of this levelling up agenda and devolution, uh, pushing agenda that the government's been touting all this long. So I, so I think it's really important it goes ahead if they're going to keep you know these promises um, to places in the north that were made oh, more than a year ago. Now I can't believe it was that long ago. <laughs> and I suppose it's the first big test, isn't it, of Boris Johnson's ability to uh, to hold on to some of that support and Keir Starmer's uh, chances of winning it back. Yeah, well, you know, we'll see. There's some. There's going to be some interesting um, council seats which could, you know, go one way or the other. And it's going to be the first litmus test of really how people in Yorkshire and in the north are, are responding to to those levelling up promises that, that that they were made during the election. Uh, let's go to um, uh, Belfast now. John Manley, uh, Manley from the Irish News. Uh, you, you're spared elections, aren't you, John, this year? We we are. No, uh, no assembly elections here until May 2022. Uh, though I have to say we will be keeping a keen eye on what happens in Scotland, as I suppose everybody uh, across the United Kingdom will, because that feeds into a growing conversation. Now, the, the bid for Scottish independence feeds into a growing conversation about our own constitutional future here. And on the sort of, you know, independence-ometer, uh, it feels like Scotland is sort of, you know, the, the needle's going further and further to the right. Where, Where is the needle um, uh, in terms of you know, a united island, do you think? Oh, that, <laughs> you've put me on the spot there. Uh, <laughs> we, the, the, you know, you, you, whenever you ask the people who look into these things, and myself included, they say, oh, well, it's all about the methodology of the opinion polls and different things, whether it's online, face to face. So there, there's certainly there is a growing 
momentum, shall we say, about the conversation. And there is uh, what we, we, we call political unionism is no longer as powerful as it once was, but su to suggest we're as far down the road to uh, unification as Scotland is to independence would be a bit premature. Uh, while I'm talking to you, John, just fill us in if people aren't aware of this uh, the story that, that broke about the threat made against Arlene Foster, the first minister. Oh, right. Well, uh, th yes, the, there's a, a, a paramilitary organisation. They're actually a, um, a maverick paramilitary organisation. Not they, They're called South East Antrim UDA, uh, and they are separate from the, the greater UDA. And people may think, but, you know, your troubles have been over for 20 years, but we still have a persistent problem with uh, par paramilitarism and, and I, particularly, I would say, loyalist paramilitarism. Uh, and this relates to uh, a man who was beaten to death uh, a year ago. Uh, Arlene Foster has expressed her solidarity um, with his family and this this uh, threat has been issued against her. It's not she's not the first public figure or journalist. This group's been responsible for uh, a number of threats, including, you know, uh, a sort of blanket threat against me and my colleagues at the Irish News. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're right. The, 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 just because people think the troubles ended a long time ago, the, those those issues are still there. I, I just want to keep you all on the line because we'll talk about um, uh, coronavirus and restrictions and how they're all going. We're awaiting Boris Johnson's uh, statement in the House of Commons. Some breaking news has just come in is that Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder, has had his bail application denied. We talked about this earlier in the week. Um, that The uh, extradition that the US was seeking was rejected earlier this week uh, at the Old Bailey. Uh, he then applied for bail and that has been denied. Take a quick look at some other headlines around this lunchtime. The chair of the Education Select Committee has called for disadvantaged children, many of whom don't have their own computer, to be able to continue going into school. Robert Halfon believes if they have to stay at home, they'll miss out on learning and suffer more than their peers. Meanwhile, there are 2,912 coronavirus-related deaths registered in England and Wales in the week up to Christmas Day. That was a slight decrease on the week before, but it's believed the Christmas Day bank holiday would have affected uh, some of the numbers. And Democrat Raphael Warnock says he's honoured to have been elected to the US Senate after NBC News called his victory in Georgia. He'll become the first black senator in the state's history. The other seat, which will determine which party controls the Senate, is still on a knife edge. Uh, let's go back to our disunited kingdom panel now. We're waiting for Boris Johnson's statement in the House of Commons on uh, these uh, latest lockdown restrictions. How's lockdown looking for you, Jerry Scott, from the Yorkshire Post? Yeah, I think... It's, it's been a long time for a lot of places in um, in the North, especially in Yorkshire, because um, I say this all the time, but areas such as West Yorkshire and South Yorkshire are under tier three restrictions for absolutely ages. So seeing a third national lockdown, whilst I guess it isn't a surprise and people understand it and people on the whole are abiding by it, it's a long old slog. Um, but I think the real concern for us in Yorkshire at the moment is we haven't seen massive rates of this new variant that we're all hearing about. I think Chris Wickey called it on TV last night an escape mutant, which I felt was um, arguably a little bit panicky. Um, but, you know, we haven't seen this variant in such large numbers yet, but we know it's coming down the road. So really what our hospitals and medics are doing at the moment are preparing, they're shoring up, and we know that areas such as ours get hit harder by viruses such as this because of 
you know, various reasons, poor housing, poor health outcomes, jobs where you can't work from home, for example. So it's really a bit of a brace position, as we know, this is coming down the line. Uh, let's go to Scotland now. Gina Davison from the uh, Scotsman. Scotland in a in an almost identical lockdown to England. Is that right? Yeah, that that's right. Um, as of midnight on Monday, we went back into into lockdown. Um, schools are closed. They're going to be shut until uh, February the first. Uh, although there will be a review on January the eighteenth to see if they can open them sooner than that. But um, there is real concern about this new variant and, you know, it's making up almost half of cases in Scotland now. It seems to be spreading far more quickly. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon has uh, described the situation here as a race between the virus and the vaccine. So, you know, they're just trying to basically put some shackles on the virus by keeping us all at home again. Only, you know, essential uh, outings are allowed, as in, you know, going to the shops for food, etc. And you have to work from home if if you can. Uh, key workers, obviously, uh, exempt from that. But yeah, we are back in a situation which is eerily familiar to uh, to last March. <laughs> uh, what about in Wales, Abby Whittick, uh, with your education uh, hat on in Wales? Obviously, Wales were already in a lockdown, so there hasn't been a new one announced. What's the situation with with schools in particular? In Wales? No. It- yeah, we've been in lockdown really since the week, well, days before Christmas. So the situation with schools is we actually made the decision. Um, school, some schools were be going to go back th- this week. Um, that was obviously changed in a very last minute U-turn on, on Monday. So there have been various different, it's basically been left up to council. So some were going back on the 6th, some the 11th, um, some the 18th. A staggered approach was allowed. There was some criticism of the Welsh Government for allowing councils to have different rules. And then they suddenly, very, very late on Monday afternoon, um, I got a call from the Welsh Government saying they were making an announcement. And they just announced, right, all, all schools are closed at least until um, uh, sorry, and not to open uh, until 18th of January at the earliest. So, I mean, that's looking very unlikely now. I can't see that happening, and the head teachers I speak to can't see that happening. And especially now, um, you know, schools in in England and, and elsewhere in the UK have announced they won't be opening till till later in February. I can't see Wales going out on a limb, especially with our high um, in, infection rates here and the fact we've been in lockdown for even longer, and now our infection rates are still high. So, um, yeah, there was. A lot of confusion and anger about that late announcement where where i think wales perhaps did get it more right was announcing the cancellation of exams back in november which of course boris johnson's only done now and that brings us to the end of this united kingdom a slightly abrupt uh, end because boris johnson suddenly appeared to give us his uh, statement to the house of commons but i was joined by abby Whittick, the education correspondent at wales online gina davidson the Deputy political editor of the Scotsman, Joey Scott, who's the Westminster correspondent of the Washington Post, and John Manley, uh, political correspondent at the Irish News. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Do rate and review us online. It helps with the mumbo jumbo charts on iTunes. And it's always nice to uh, hear from you. If you want to get in touch with me about anything on the podcast, you can email me matt.chorley at times.radio. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.